This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. And now, it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest today. Five-time Grammy Award winner and ten-time Grammy nominee, Mervyn Warren, who is a highly accomplished TV and film composer, record producer, lyricist, songwriter, arranger, pianist, and vocalist, and one of the people that changed my life when the first album of Take Six came out. <laughs> Thank you. So without further ado, here is Mervyn Warren. Oh 
they would call way too many ideas <laughs> in one arrangement. <laughs> but you know, for 18, I, I, you know, I excuse myself for uh, trying all sorts of things. Um, and talking about the kitchen sink, and, and some of you will recognize a little transition in there. I don't know if it's the right key, but it was something like.
taught me the whole song in that style. That was the very first thing I ever learned on the piano. If I'm not mistaken, the second thing was an Edwin Hawkins tune called I Heard the Voice. And it was... Uh, Um, that, uh, that, that we 
team with us, but he certainly has left a legacy that uh, that we can enjoy, you know. And and I will say this is the truth: when Gene passed away, um, I cried for three days. I mean, I not continuously, but I for three days I found myself bursting into tears. When my own grandfather died, I did not cry, and that's significant because. Just as I had support from my parents and certain community members as I was growing up and hanging with Mark and doing different things, I had opposition from my own grandfather. Um, he disapproved of everything that I did musically, um, which was which was interesting. I should also say that he was the elder, one of the elders at the church, and so he was a he was a, a figure of authority, um, and uh, so that was that was challenging. I sort of grew up with uh, with that. Opposition, um, and he never ever um, really appreciated anything that I did. As a matter of fact, um, many years many years later, um, after Take Six had won some awards and what have you, I went back just before my grandfather died in his nineties. Um, I had gone back for Christmas to see my family, and after having won awards and worked with amazing people, he says so. What are you doing for a living these days? <laughs> I said, well, grandmother, I'm, I'm, I'm still writing and producing and recording music as, I, as I've done for a number of years now. And he said, oh. So, how are you paying your bills? <laughs> and I said, you know, believe it or not, the music actually pays my bills, and I even have a little left over. <laughs> he, he, he went, he, you know, he, he, he took that attitude to his grave. So I never had his approval. Um, and uh, so in, in some ways, I think Gene Perling is sort of my uh, surrogate grandfather. I never told him that, but as I talk about it, that's how it feels. Um, <clears throat> uh, I went through high school, always had vocal groups. Actually, I had my first vocal group at the age of 10. I was doing arrangements for five girls in my, in my class. Um, and one group led to another group, led to another, led to another. But I always had these vocal groups because that's what we were allowed to do. And we did other things too. I mean, we had full combo and drums and the whole thing. We just couldn't perform that stuff um, at the church, but we did it on the campus. And so we were just sort of cutting our teeth. And they were on a recording studio in Huntsville. And, and uh, when I was I think 16. I did a. I played on a. Played, I did an arrangement actually, um, and and played on a choir uh, recording there. And once I discovered that the studio was there, Mark Kibble and I went to the studio and then said, "Okay, here's the deal. We play the piano. We sing. We arrange. We do it all. You should hire us." And believe it or not, he did. Um, so we were still full-time students, but after, um, I guess that started, like I said, I was about 16-ish. So we were full-time students, but in the evening, at maybe five or six, we would go down to uh, South Cell, this recording studio, and we did, we, we sang on or played on whatever he was working on. Um, we, we weren't sort of contracted, we, were, we weren't really staff, but we just sort of showed up. And if he had something for us, we did it. So we did sing, well, we sang on a million country records, because it was Alabama. Um, we did, I did string arrangements and horn arrangements, which we performed with electronic keyboards, you know, early, early electronic keyboards. 
Um, but we were honing our crafts. We were honing our crafts. Sometimes it was jazz, sometimes it wasn't. Whatever it was, we were happy to do it. And we would go down there for, you know, whatever, two, three hours, and then we'd walk out with a check for 50 bucks, which for a 16, 17-year-old kid is not bad. Not bad at all. And uh, so that was Mark and I and, and other members of the group. Eventually, a special blend was formed, and then later, um, take six. Um, and uh, I, I completed my degree in piano performance. Uh, I wanted to study composition and arranging, but that particular school didn't have an arranging or composition uh, major. So I did piano performance because I was going my own. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldberg and Dalvin Stosius for the recording this time. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast.
here, Mr. Tony Shepard. So that my dad got a kick out of that. 
Um, but they set me up there. I had a studio, you know, back in those days, our studios were these rigs that had to be shipped and carted and, you know. So I set up a studio in this apartment at the Oakwood Apartments. Um, and I cranked out, you know, those arrangements for the movie Sister Act 2. Um, I, I'm not going to play any of that tonight, but you can look forward if you, if you like. Um, and that was the beginning, sort of official beginning, of my career in film. Um, I had actually worked on a movie prior to that. Uh, with Take Six, I did some work on Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Um, we did some radio jingles for the movie. You know, there's the, the radio. Um, Samuel Jackson plays that radio DJ whenever they play the radio station, which we did in the old kind of thick vocal style. So that was a lot. I should have brought one of those. There's, those are quick. I could have, I could have brought those. Anyway, uh, but we did a couple of songs for Do the Right Thing, but I did that with Take Six. Sister Act 2 was my first movie that I did um, having left the group, um, and that led to other, other you know, movie-related gigs. Um, and uh, that was 1993. I can't even believe that that was 22 years ago. 1993, almost to the week. It was, uh, I think I actually came in February of that year, and finished the movie in, in April or so, and I was about to go back to Nashville where I had a house that was about to be built. I had bought property um, maybe 20 miles outside of Nashville. Nashville is very flat, um, but there is a mountain about 20 miles south of Nashville, and I had bought property on that mountain, and, and uh, I was going to have a little house full of view. Um, and I had a house designed by an architect, and we were getting permits, and that's when I got this call. So I came to do Sister Act 2, and I told everybody, I'll be gone for a couple of months, I'll be back, and they will break ground. Well, that didn't quite happen. I quite literally did not go back to Nashville. I didn't even go back for my stuff. Um, I had it put on a truck and sent to me, because I didn't want to spend the money flying back to Nashville just to pack and then fly back. So I was just like, can you pay people to pack? And I found out that you could, and so I splurged, and that's what I did. And I even had my car put on a truck and just sent to me. And I rented a house here. And I have been here um, ever since. I never, I never went back. Um, and I'm skipping over, I mean, it's hard to, in a synopsis like this, but I'm skipping over some wonderful, wonderful times that I had in Nashville. Um, as you probably know, the Nashville was sort of the seat of a lot of contemporary Christian music, which I was doing at the time. And I did, I worked on a lot of Sandy Patty records and Steve Green records and all of that stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And, and you might have heard of vocal group uh, First Call and their arranger, guy named David Maddox, who's a brilliant, brilliant arranger. So we were all just kind of doing our thing in Nashville over those years. And Greg Nelson was one of the big producers in town, and he would constantly call me to do arrangements for this person and that. So we had a lot of fun um, during that era, and uh, I just sort of skip over that in, in a sentence or two, but um, all of that happened sort of concurrently with some of the Tick Six stuff, and then in those couple of years after I left the group, leading to me coming here. Um, and then I began to do film. Um, score and songs, um, depending on what it was. Sometimes a score, sometimes songs, sometimes both. It just sort of depend, depended on what was needed. And that leads me to um, another film that probably no more than two people 
saw. And I promise. Uh, but it's a, a movie called Steel, starring Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> and uh, Shaquille plays this um, kind of a gritty Batman sort of character. He's a crime-fighting guy. Um, and uh, he gets put in a suit. Uh, and they have this high-tech equipment. And he's going out fighting crime. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of funny to talk about, and unfortunately the movie did not do very well, but it was a huge opportunity for me. That movie was produced by Quincy Jones. I don't know if Quincy would even want me to mention it at this point. <laughs> but uh, Quincy produced it, and Quincy said to the director, I want Merville Warren to support this movie. And that was a huge you know, opportunity for me. So I do have a, a one clip from that movie. Um, it's an action movie, but this particular clip, well, it's sort of action, but it's sort of a down, downplayed action. Uh, it's it's a, a bank heist that's going on. Um, and uh, I'd like to play that clip now. So we're skipping Milton. Well, that's the only video, so you know which one it is. Uh, I, I met him with Take Six, 
Um, they had, take, because Take Six was signed to a Warner Brothers label, they had taken us to his house. I'm backing up now in time. They had taken us to his house, and I remember sitting there. Of course, I grew up listening to, to Quincy's music in Alabama, and I couldn't believe that there we were, and, and you know, everyone knows his album, The Dude, and The Dude is, is actually a statue that's on the cover of the album. Well, there was the dude sitting on his coffee table, and we're just sitting there, just like, oh my God, that's actually the dude. <laughs> and I was brazen enough that day, the very day that we met him at his house, Warner Brothers shuttled us up there to meet him, and he was so gracious, and he said that, uh, I remember him saying at the time, that his office at the time would get over 200 CDs and tapes a day, a day. And he said it's just impossible to sit through all of that. I mean, it's just physically impossible. Um, but he said to us that he had started getting copies of our project, and like everything else, it had gotten tossed into a bin, or I don't know what they were doing with it. But he finally said, after I got about 40 copies of your CD, I figured I'd better listen to it. And, um, and uh, apparently he liked what he heard because he said, bring those guys over, and that's how we met Quincy. And um, that very day, as I was there with the group, but as we were leaving, I very brazenly said, um, please keep me in mind for any, you know, any work you might have, arrangements or whatever, I you know I'm available. And um, eventually that uh, sort of that sort of paid off. We stayed in touch. And um, I, I actually have done arrangements on, on his last three albums, um, uh, Back on the Block, Juke Joint, and most recently, uh, Soul, Bossa Nostra. Um, I either sang on with Take Six on the first album, or I did things on my own, or did arrangements for other people. And Quincy uh, has been very, very supportive over the years, and picking me to score uh, that movie, Steel. Um, I co-produced the remake of We Are The World with, with Quincy, and, and I've done a number of things, and I'm actually currently represented by Quincy and his company. So I, I still sometimes pinch myself because growing up a little, you know, a little middle-class kid in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, did not uh, anticipate ending up uh, in Hollywood and working with such legendary people. Um, but that has been fantastic. Um, let's see, what else here? So one, uh, shortly thereafter, how, how am I doing on time? Uh, You're good. Okay. Ten All right. Ten to fifteen. Awesome. Perfect. Um, uh, shortly after that film, uh, I did another called The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston. Um, I didn't write the score on that one, although I wanted to, but Penny Marshall didn't trust me to do that. I was too young or something. I don't know. I'm putting words in her mouth. I'm teasing. But I, I was, I was a, uh, hired to arrange and produce all of Whitney's songs uh, for The Preacher's Wife, which I did. And then, and then the following year, I got hired to do a movie called Living Out Loud, um, starring Queen Latifah, Danny DeVito, and Holly Hunter. Um, it's a quirky little, quirky little film, but uh, Queen Latifah plays a jazz singer. And they asked me if I would do her arrangements. In fact, Danny DeVito also, so I did a, a chart for Danny. He does, uh, they can't take that away from me. I had no idea that Danny sings and also reads music. They sent me to his house to, uh, 
to rehearse, and they had given me a sheet music for They Can't Take That Away From Me. Uh, well, I, they just sort of sent it perfunctorily. I didn't know they were sending it, so um, I think I got, I got a messenger package or something, and there was the sheet music. So I took it along, but I had learned the song, and I played by ear, so I wasn't really using the sheet music, but I had it there in case he wanted lyrics or something, and it was sitting on the piano at his house. So we went through the song, and we found the key, and blah, 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 and then I was leaving. He said, oh, I noticed you didn't use the sheet music. I said, well, I just, I wanted to make sure I knew the song, and I figured you would want to try different keys, so I was just playing it by ear. So he goes, oh, well, can I keep that? I said, oh, sure. He goes, yeah, because I'll sit and read through it, and I'll learn it myself. Turns out he reads music, he plays the piano, he sings. I shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, you know, many, many creative people have talents that we don't always know about, but, but Danny's quite musical. Um, but, but, the, but the focus was really on Queen Latifah as a jazz singer in this, in this film. And the next thing I'd like to play for you is, uh, what is, the, is the arrangement that opens the movie. It's uh, Queen Latifah doing my arrangement of Lush Life, number four.
sort of an homage to uh, one of the all-time great arrangers, um, Mr. Johnny Mandel. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him, being introduced to him several years ago, and um, he invited me over to, for, to his house for a chat. So um, I, I took a copy of this um, and I, I played it for him. And uh, he sat very quietly, you know, and I'm kind of shaking in my boots. Um, you know, it's the great Johnny Mandel. What does he want to say? I played this for him at, uh, in his den. And when it, was, when it ended, he paused for five or ten seconds and finally he said, God damn. <laughs> Those are the kind of chords you want to stick your dick in. <laughs> And it is all based on actual events in their lives. 
So this shows in development, I'm attached as the um, arranger, composer, um, and fingers crossed that uh, actually Quincy is involved as an executive producer. And uh, so hopefully we will have some jazz on TV soon. Oh mm -hmm. 
said, well, why the hell are we looking for singers? Why don't you just do it? And I said, well, if you like it enough, then I will, I'm happy to do it. You know, I'll, I'll clean up this demo and I'll turn it into a record and we can do it. But, um, and that's what we ended up doing. Um, and and uh, again, it's the sort of James Bond-esque um, song that I had a lot of fun writing. Um, there's a lot of innuendo in the lyrics. Uh, and I'd like to play that for you before I take questions. This is from a couple years ago from the movie Hot Guys with Guns, and the song is called Something to Shoot For.
wish I had time to play some more movie stuff. But uh, stuff is out there, and uh, it's been a wonderful journey, and uh, looking forward to, uh, well, in your 22 years, looking forward to the next 22 and beyond. Um, so that's my little, uh, that's my little spiel, and I would love to take any questions. Yes, sir, Ian. Perfect. Is it uh, possible to go back for as many years and play and the track stage six? I think there's some people in this room who may be interested. Do you have anything on your computer uh, that you play or not? I didn't supply uh, the booth with anything. Uh, so I don't know if they happen to have something. I'd be happy to. to, to From Central Beginning, Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're right. I, I sort of was under the assumption that most people here would have already heard that stuff, so I thought I'd play other things. But as I now know, there are people here who, who, who may not have heard the group. So, but I'm sorry, I didn't. Um, I didn't prepare to play any of that stuff. So unless they have it in the booth. Oh.
fitting, that's a fitting piece of some of the many things I didn't have time to say. But, so that's page six, obviously. Um, that song was covered by uh, Janice Siegel of the Manhattan Transfer on one of her solo albums. She recorded that song. And then coincidentally, Take Six and the Manhattan Transfer will be performing in this very room next Monday and Tuesday. So a uh, little bit of a uh, connection there. And by the way, I have to throw in this one story. So at the very beginning, when I played you uh, my group, A Special Blend, and that song from A Special Blend that I, that I did when I was 18 and we recorded when I was 19, after making that album, um, or while making that album, I had a, a very dear friend, Jacqueline, who lived in Toronto. And, um, uh, and she also sort of dabbled in vocal jazz and blah, 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 not professionally, but, but she's very talented and we had been friends for a number of years. And she called me one night and said, um, you know, Manhattan Transfer is coming to Toronto in a couple of weeks. She goes, you should come to the show. And um, I was a broke college student, but somehow I figured out a way to, I still don't know what I did. Um, I got on a plane and I flew up to Toronto. Um, and I took with me two copies of that album that, uh, you know, with that song. Um, and after the concert, which was fantastic, uh, Jacqueline and I waited backstage, not backstage, we waited at the stage door. Um, and this was Toronto in the winter. We waited at the stage door for the transfer to come out. Um, and so I'm guessing I must have been about 20 years old at the time. Um, and they came out and I had two or three copies of that album and I had taped my business card to the album and I gave it to them and they were very gracious and they took the album and, um, and they signed some autographs and said thank you and they got on the bus and that was that. Well, um, uh, months later, uh, or maybe within a year or so, I had started my master's at the University of Alabama, and I was driving back and forth between Huntsville, where I lived, and Tuscaloosa, where I was working on my master's. And I was in Tuscaloosa, and you know we didn't have cell phones back then, but I got I got a message that my dad had called, so pay phone, and I, um, you know used my little calling card and I called my dad and he says, oh yeah, there's a message from you. There's a, a Janice Siegel called for you. And I'm like, excuse me? You know, and again, I'm like 20 years old and in grad school, 20, 21. And uh, Janice had called to say how much they loved the album. And again, this is one of these unselfish things. We clearly, my group of Special Blend was clearly modeled after the Manhattan Transfer. Um, in some ways, and um, very, very, um, you know, magnanimous of them. Not, not only of Janice to call and say how much they enjoyed it, but then she asked me this question. She says, have you heard from the Grammy Committee? And I was thinking, now why would I have heard from the Grammy Committee? <laughs> they had actually submitted our album for Grammy nomination. Um, and, um, of course, it was you know it was a little independent project, and there weren't enough submissions for it to track with the academy. But again, you know, there I am in grad school, um, and uh, having waited out you know in the cold just to hand them a copy, and then I hear from her sometime later saying, you know, we submitted your album for Grammy nomination. So that was a really really nice, um, more than nice uh, thing for them to do. Magnanimous, as I said earlier and really was sort of the beginning of my
done some arrangements for them over the years. Um, actually, not too long after that, maybe a couple years later, they called me and, and Arif Mardin was producing one of their albums, but they flew me out and I did a couple charts and, and I've, I've you know, worked with them a few times over the years. Um, so there's just a lot of convergence uh, and uh, I am looking forward to hearing them and take six perform uh, next week uh, in this room. Any more questions? Yes, sir. I do write a, essentially a piano. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not an acoustic piano, but it's a, a full-sized electronic keyboard with weighted keys, so it feels like a piano and not because it feels electronic. Um, but then it also has the electronic uh, features so that I can play MIDI and all those other things that I need to do. So it is a full-size keyboard, and I do write at that keyboard, yes. Yeah. How old were you when I first started notating music, um, what was that? You know, I learned at a, at a young age, but I found it tedious. I learned how to, you know, I took some piano lessons when I was six, seven, eight. I was already playing by ear. My mom said, oh, you should take lessons. And I took some lessons, but I hated them. And so they let me stop. But I kept playing. I kept doing my own thing. So I knew how to read. But when I did arrangements, I was teaching them to singers who did not all know how to read. So we got in the habit of learning, you know, I got in the habit of memorizing my arrangements and then teaching them I wrote. Um, the first time I wrote out an arrangement was probably in grad school because I had to. No, I take that back. I was about 16 years old and there was a TV show, a religious TV show based in Thousand Oaks, California called The Breath of Life. And um, they uh, had asked me, in fact, I had a longer list of songs to play, and I had to whittle it down because we didn't have a lot of time. But I did an arrangement for the Breath of Life television show featuring uh, Walter Artiz and a, and a chorus of Los Angeles session singers. And to this day, I don't know who they were. I know Myrna Matthews was on that session. Um, and um, temporary they are. I can't think of his name. You know, Sally, uh, do you know the guy who did that? Did, um, anyway, I, I was a kid, and there were these sessions, and I was blown away, and I wrote out that arrangement because I knew it was coming to LA, and they were going to have to sight read this arrangement. So that may be the first time I ever wrote out an arrangement. I was 16. They flew me out here. They did these two charts of mine, which were not easy, I will say. <laughs> Because I was also trying to like impress them, even though I had the job, I was like, "Well, I have to. This is LA. I gotta really bring it." So it was not an easy chart. And they sat there and they sang it effortlessly, which also kind of blew my mind that people could just read that. Where I was used to plunking out, and I had amazing singers who could learn anything, but they didn't read it, you know. So I believe that was the first time when I was 16. And um, and again, I was and, and I was fighting. I should say fighting. Um, I hadn't persuaded everyone at home that I could make a living as a musician. And I came to LA and I, did, I had done these two arrangements. Um, and I, like I said, I, and I went home and, and put a check for like $600, which was a big, big, big deal for a 16-year-old kid to do a couple of arrangements. And you know, $600 is a big deal. So my parents were finally like, oh, OK, maybe there's, you know, my parents are academia. My dad has two PhDs, two. So my parents are academicians, and it was all about you know your degrees and, and you 
parents care for you and want you to have the best life. And I understood that. It was difficult to convey to them, I can make a living with music, because in Alabama there weren't a lot of examples of that other than teachers. And I was happy to teach, which is why I got my master's, so that I could teach if I had to. But I, I never had to do that. We, we each got our deal with Warner Brothers and the rest is history. Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
country. We, they actually paid us. We went on weekends after Friday after classes. We'd get on a bus and we, you know, we'd go to Columbus or something, and we would do a concert in Columbus, and we'd get back on the bus, or we'd spend the night, but then we'd get back in time for classes on Monday morning. And we did that many, many weeks throughout the year, and it was always a, an international trip every year. So she, Alma Lackman, lives very, very largely uh, in my life, and she was very influential. She was a phenomenal pianist, um, and uh, I learned quite a bit from. So uh, it's, I'm honored that you would associate with me with her in that way. Yes, ma'am? Um, can you talk a minute about B.G. Perlin? Yes, uh, you know, it, was a, it wasn't a remarkable meeting. It was remarkable in my mind. But, I mean, it wasn't a flashy meeting. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an event, um, and I'm forgetting the details. And Ian, where's Ian? Right here. Occasion, and there was a group that did an arrangement, um, and, and Ian had written this arrangement. And I was, Sally had called me, or someone had called me and said, Can you sing in the group? And I was busy and I wasn't able to make the rehearsal. And someone said, Oh, just sight read it. And I just, I felt bad because other singers had, you know, spent time to go to a rehearsal. And I didn't want to just kind of show up and sing. So I said, You know what? I'll, I'll sit out. Um, and the arrangement was absolutely fantastic, and this man had channeled Gene and this arrangement, and to this day, I'm just, you know, floored by what he was able to do. So that's when I, that's the first time I actually met Gene, and there were a lot of musicians and singers and arrangers and people there, and it was in a room not, not much unlike this one, and, um, I, you know, I did get to, you know, shake his hand, and he knew who I was, and, I mean, it's perfectly, you know, I don't mean to suggest that he wouldn't have, that he was, uh, I'm not saying that he was in a, in a stage of life where he was forgetful. I'm just meaning that he, you know, he, he did know who I was, and he, he thanked me for coming. And um, but we didn't get to have a conversation per se. This was a very brief sort of meeting, and of course I let him know how much I appreciated it. And they sort of already knew that to an extent because they had already come out, I believe, with the Magic Voices compilation of the Singers Unlimited uh, CDs. I had bought. I'm old enough that I have every single album on vinyl, every single one. I think there are 17 of them or 18. But then they later came out with this box set called Magic Voices, and in the liner notes of Magic Voices, they mentioned Take Six. So I know that you know they were they were very aware, and that was an honor of us for for us to be mentioned. Um, so I did meet him, and I was thrilled to meet him. It just was not um, we we didn't have the opportunity to visit and chat. It was just a, a brief meeting. We
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcast.